So uh, let me jump in real quick. So we've been in a year-long series that's been called the Year of Biblical Literacy. In short, what that means is that as a church community, we've been reading through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. In fact, I have a slide up here that shows you exactly where we're at today, as of today. Um, so when we started the year, January 1, we started off, obviously, in Genesis 1, page 1. Um, I think we got the slide it's coming up, um, on where we're at as far as like reading through the Bible. Right now, I think it's, depending upon what um, app that you guys are using, there's basically two apps that we didn't really know fully getting into this, that there were some incongruities between the two of them. One is called the YouVersion app, the other is called the Read Scripture app. Thanks, guys. These are awesome. Thanks. Let's give our multimedia people a round of applause and our sound guys. These guys are awesome. Thank you. Okay, just a word for these guys. These guys come early, they work hard, and oftentimes the only time you ever recognize them is when something's not working. <laughs> so it's important for us to remember what they do. In fact, if you ever want to be part of like our tech team, if you can do this, I mean, it takes a lot more than just that, but if you'd like to ever be part of that, we, we're always looking for good, solid people that just want to serve Jesus and be part of that team. So you can talk to those guys back there. Thank you guys for what you do. Um, so wherever you're at, whether or not you're doing the Read Scripture app, you would be on 2 Kings chapter 15, 17, it's today, or uh, version app, which is about a book behind. So maybe you're not even anywhere near that right now, and you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed or guilty. We've been saying this all along. Don't ever feel overwhelmed. Don't ever feel guilty. There's no oppression. There's no, like, uh, you have to do this. Um, in fact, if you're so far behind, I was actually an entire book behind. That's how far behind I, I had gotten. Um, that you, know, you can either just jump in right here, if you want to jump into the uh, read scripture thing that we're doing this year, um, or you know, work hard to get caught up. You know, just, I, I like to put on audio and just listen to it. Um, you can actually do like projects around the house, like clean up or stuff like that. You're just listening to audio um, on, on Bible. So that's kind of where we're at. So we've been in this year-long uh, reading scripture program, but one of the things that we've also been doing along lines with that is we start at the beginning of the year, and where we're currently at right now, is in a series of teachings in which we're trying to not only help give you guys, equip you with some utensils and tools to read scripture, but also wanting to paint a big overarching picture of what the whole Bible storyline is all about. So those were the first two series or teaching series that we did. We're kind of in the third teaching series right now, and this is called The Language of Faith. And what we've been trying to, or what we've been discovering as we've been reading through the Bible is not only is there this overarching storyline, and not only do we need tools to know how to read scripture, but we also recognize that there are all these themes in the Bible. And these big words that we've been state, stating. And sometimes those words might sound a little bit um, confusing. Um, and in some ways, it's because those words are Bible words. And in some ways, it's just because Christians create weird subculture and they have their own like code language. Just like any other group has their own code language. And what we've been trying to do is focus on particularly the words of the Bible that the Bible describes and trying to unpack some of these words. So what we looked at last week, and kind of by way of a little bit of a review, is we looked at the big uh, Bible word called glory. We asked the question, like, what in the world does the word glory mean? In fact, by the way, let me just say this. You have our ushers. If you guys need a Bible, raise your hand right now, and we have some ushers that would love to get your Bible. You're going to need a Bible today. There's going to be a lot of passages that we're going to be looking at, so grab a Bible if you need one. Um, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, this is all, as we always say, it's our gift to you. Keep it yours. Um, so we looked at the word glory, and as I was studying and preparing for this talk a couple weeks ago, I realized that the subject is massive. The word glory is one of the, one of the biggest used words in the entire Bible. It's used more than 350 times, depending on what translation you use, both Old and New Testament. It's all the way throughout. It's, it's literally what we described last week. It's a gateway word, meaning it's a word that brings you into the entire storyline of the Bible as to what God is up to in this world, what God's intentions are for this world, what God's intention is for you, believe it or not. Um, and we looked at kind of this bigger picture last week. So next slide, I'll kind of show you a little bit about, in summary, what we looked at. Number one is glory meant. So glory meant, again, this is by way of review, um, you can kind of summarize it in three things. One, you can think of it as luminescence, radiance, cloud. These are all ways in which we looked at this word is used from last week. Um, another way to think of it is the word weightiness. Um, the word kabod or kavod in the Old Testament um, literally means weightiness. This could be metaphorical weightiness, um, meaning, wow, they have like an aura about themselves. Like that, that would be kavod, right? Have you ever met somebody? They're like larger than life. They walk in the room and you're like in awe of them. And they haven't really said anything or done anything. Um, 
my wife had this experience. Uh, she probably wouldn't be happy that I'm telling this. But uh, she was on an elevator, and Justin Bieber was on the elevator, right? So she, she, the, the other people that were with her were just, like, like taken up into his cavode, right? The glory of Justin Bieber. This is kind of a weird thing to say, but the cavode. And sometimes there are people that have larger-than-life personalities. They have this cavode about them. That's kind of a metaphorical uh, weightiness. But then we also saw in the Old Testament that's also literal. So Eli, the, uh, the priest, um, died because he fell off because, number one, he was old. Number two, he had cavode, which meant what? He was, he was a fat, fat guy. He was really large. And that combination of being old and, and you know, 350 pounds or whatever um, didn't bode well on his, on his body because he snapped his neck and, and died because he had cavode. So weightiness, uh, both literal and, and metaphorical. But we also recognize that this word can also mean like something along the lines of reputation or favor or acceptance or significance, somebody that has significance. So if someone were to have all of this, this glory, about themselves, the reputation, the honor, the favor, acceptance about them. And if they were to look at you and honor you, that would be them bestowing their glory upon you. Does that make sense? So we looked at last week. So this is all summary. Next slide. Talk a little bit about kind of how this kind of played into the overarching storyline of the Bible. Again, this is just like sermon from last week in five minutes. Number one, we saw that this is what's truest of God, that God is all glorious. He, he has all reason to have all reputation, all weightiness, all power, all authority torn. Um, but it, we also saw that this is what's true about humanity. So believe it or not, this glory is what's true about you. I'm going to come as a shock. You need to listen to last week's message to get the full understanding and unpacking of the biblical narrative of that to make sense of that. But number one, uh, we also see that it's with a glitch, meaning we, we all have sinned, as Romans says, and fallen short of that glory, fallen short of that glory. Thirdly, we see that this is ultimately taps in the main mission of what God is up to in this world, that Jesus comes to restore. Jesus comes in the fullness of the glory, full acceptance, full embrace of the Father um, for the purpose to rescue and redeem uh, those who have fallen out of this routine, this relationship of glory with the Father, that this is what Jesus is up to, is restoring all of this. Um, now, this kind of brings us up to speed as to where we're at today. So what I wanted to look at today as I was <coughs> preparing this and thinking about this, I realized that there's a lot of uh, practical elements about this that I think are important that, that play into the overall picture of the story. So in other words, let me put it this way. We can talk about glory in a theoretical sense. That Yes, okay, I get it. God's all glorious, and yes, I get it. Humanity is glorious, and yet we fall short of the glory, so on and so forth. That yes, Jesus comes and redeems and restores us to whatever that was that we had lost. It's wonderful. But the big question that kind of should be floating somewhere in our headspace is what does that have to do with my life right now? What does that have to do with the fact that I live in a world that just, you know, gone to, gone to war again, just dropped bombs on another nation? And what does that mean for my day in which we have all sorts of issues and problems and murders and suffering and pain in our nation at large, but also in my own life? on a very personal level. What does that mean for me as somebody that's struggling to relate with other people that have hurt me or wounded me or broken my life and that, that somebody might actually be your spouse? Like, how, how, do we, how, how does this play into our actual life? And so there's a very incredibly practical side of glory. Believe it or not, that kind of fills the rest of the pages of the New Testament. And what I want to do this morning, again, literally an entire book can be written on this. Is the more I was looking at this, I'm like, oh my goodness, there's so much content here. And I can go on for months, like do an entire teaching series just on this. In fact, everything I'm going to talk about today, I literally can do an entire sermon just on each one of these points. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to restrain myself. You're welcome. And I'm going to just keep it limited to three things, though there's a lot more things I can talk about. And I just want to think about these things. I'm going to shortly uh, ponder them, consider them, and uh, just th these are practical ways in which this idea of God's acceptance, God's favor, God's glory can actually transform and change your life. So hopefully that makes sense. So the three things that we'll basically look at, I'll tell you them right up front, and we'll just kind of go back and look at them all. Number one is that God's glory, ultimately, as we see, uh, next slide, is that God's glory will actually reorient the entirety of our lives. Second one I'll kind of just state and come back to is that God's glory will reshape how we see one another. And then finally, God's glory will open up to us new perspectives on suffering. 
So number one, God's glory will reorient the entirety of our lives. So what, whatever, whoever God is, whatever God has done in this world, whatever God is up to currently in our lives, the, an understanding, a proper understanding of God's glory can actually radically reshape the complete formation of your life in its entirety. Now, for some of us, um, we, might not look at our, we might look at ourselves and think, I don't need reshaping. So for, for, for those that are kind of in that place, it may be a combination of, of state of denial. Like, we're not really aware of the fact that there are areas in our lives that are out of place, that are out of order, out of sync with how God is and who God is. Um, or we might be in places where we very much so recognize the fact that we're broken, we have issues and scenarios and circumstances and desires that are in our heart that, are, that shouldn't be there, that are driving us. When we give in to those desires and we follow those things to their fullness, that they, they're the very things that are actually getting us into trouble. So in other words, it's not just so much our behavior. So anybody can kind of cultivate, I'll say this, Christian-like behavior. Do you understand that? Anybody can cultivate Christian-like behavior. But that's, that's not what God is up to. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that that's exactly what religion is. Religion is sort of factories that cultivate religious behavior. So again, it kind of starts off by saying, what should religious people look like? Or what should good moral people look like? Or ethical people look like? And let's, let's create a system or society where we live according to those ethics or standards and moralities. But that's, not, that's radically different than reorienting your life around the glory of God. Do, do you understand this? So this is what I want to try to unpack. The first thing is that an understanding of God's glory will actually reorient the entirety of our lives. So I want to begin by reading just a passage that we'll, we'll look at, we'll kind of make reference to, but I figure this would be a really great passage just to launch everything into, and then we'll kind of backtrack and look at a handful of other passages. So I think this is, this is a good summary of it all. I'd like to read out of the book of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses 8 through 11, and a couple other passages. And so um, I, I thought it would be kind of fun to like, let's stand, as we did on Easter, to, to, to mark uh, God's, uh, the importance of God's placement of his word in this community here. So why don't we all stand? I'll read it. You can follow along. You guys have Bibles? I think it will also be up on the screen, um, I think. Uh, but listen to what 2 Corinthians, I think I put it on there. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Just listen to these words and um, take them in. Paul says, Shouldn't we expect far greater glory now that the Holy Spirit is giving us life? If the old ways, which brings condemnation, was glorious... Referring to the law, how much more glorious is the new way, which makes us right with God? In fact, that first glory, which was, uh, was not glorious compared to the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way, which has been replaced, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way, which remains forever? Verse 17, he goes on to say, for where... Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, there's our word, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let me pray real quick and we'll jump in. So God, again, we receive your word. We ask that you would open our hearts to receive all that you have for us this morning that be transformed, that we be truly changed. So God, have your way here this morning amongst us, within us, and pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, you can be all seated. So the subject of transformation is, is central to the New Testament idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So let me put it this way. Um, if you had interaction with Jesus, you were changed. Let me put it this way, if you claim to have interaction with Jesus, but not be changed, you really have not had interaction with Jesus. There's one thing that people always had when they encountered Jesus, was nobody walked away unchanged. Everybody was transformed by Jesus. Some transformed in good, positive ways, where their hearts were more malleable, more open, more submitted, uh, overwhelmingly uh, captivated by the grace and the kindness and the love of Jesus. 
others walked away ticked off because Jesus claimed authority over their life. Who are you to claim authority over my life? I'm the king. And everybody knows you can have two kings in a kingdom. And so somebody's got to go. And so everybody had an encounter with Jesus, walked away, changed, transformed. So what we see with this particular idea with the New Testament is carrying it to its logical end, that everybody that met Jesus was transformed by Jesus. Their life was in a process of being remade, reshaped. Now, one of the most amazing things that you got to just make sure that you understand first and foremost is that the transformation comes after trust in Jesus has taken place, not before. This is really important because what religion basically states is you got to get your you know, stuff in order before you come to God. Got to get your life cleaned up before you come hang out with, with God and God's people. Now, again, that's what religion says. Because religion says you got to act good, be moral, don't drink, don't have sex, don't listen to bad music, make sure you watch Christian movies. All these things, there's this like code of conduct that you have to do, that you have to get right in order for God to accept you. And I would suggest that's completely false. In fact, I would say it's toxic, it's destructive. Because who actually can ever do that? Nobody can. But what Christianity is all about is it says to trust Jesus, and in trusting Jesus, God will then begin to reorient the sum total of your life around him. He will change your heart, change your desires, transform you from being a person that is in a state of brokenness and destruction to becoming a person that is being remade and renewed on every level of our lives. This is what the Bible basically says. And the way that this happens, Paul just told us in that passage we just read, is it comes by way of beholding the glory or looking at the glory, understanding who God is. Looking to Jesus is one, another one of those Christian cliches that oftentimes it gets tossed around. You know, Christians will say, what do you got to do to get your life right? Just look to Jesus, bro. Okay, cool. Like, what, what does that mean? He's, he's kind of invisible. I haven't seen him. Um, so again, you got to unpack it a little bit. What does that mean to look to Jesus? Like, what we mean by that technically is it's a combination of studying scripture, reading scripture, prayerfully coming to God with an open heart, a posture that says, God, I'm here to learn. I want to grow. I want to see things. Now, that shouldn't be shocking to us that sometimes the most beautiful things come to us in hidden, hidden arenas. Like, this, this, like love. You can't necessarily define love or see love, but love is a very powerful thing that swoops over a person's soul. So what we see here is that we come, this beholding is really this way of becoming. Looking to Jesus is a way of becoming like Jesus. Do you know that you and I were actually hardwired for glorious things? There's a hardwiring about your life, about my life, that is overwhelmed by glory. So much so that if we are not regularly, frequently in awe or inspired, amazed. We either become bored, and within that realm of boredom, I think what typically happens is bored people get themselves into trouble. I mean, look, this is a universal rule for parents with toddlers, right? The reason why kids get into trouble always is because they're bored. So you give them your iPad, don't do that. Um, or you give them a book, you give them Legos, whatever. You give them something so that they are no longer bored. Because when they become bored, then they start whacking their sibling. They start getting in trouble. They start running in traffic. They start being defiant. They start doing all of these things because of boredom's sake. But look, you and I are just big toddlers. We've learned how to micromanage or manage ourselves in such ways or conduct ourselves in ways that the older we get, we have not become more disconnected with boredom. In fact, there's all sorts of studies and statistics that are out today that are basically saying that humanity, especially in the West, is more bored than ever. So what do we do? You know what this is, right? Yeah, that's social media right there. We're bored. We don't know what to do with our time. And what happens is in, the, is in the realm of boredom, we look for things. We are hardwired. You are hardwired for glory. You are hardwired to be amazed by glorious things. You know this. We know this. And this is exactly what the story of the New Testament is all about. That glory has come in the person of Jesus. That when we behold him, we become like him. We are transformed by him. We're changed by him. But what oftentimes happens is that you and I, we become disconnected from that story. 
And when we become disconnected or removed from that story, we move into realms of boredom in which now we have this feeling, this desire, this need to somehow rid ourselves from the boredom and to find other things that keep us satisfied. So again, we turn to violence, we turn to uh, anger, we turn to pornography, and those ultimately oftentimes lead to addictions or addictive behavior because these are all remedies to somehow rid ourselves of boredom. But do you realize the whole point of glory is to ravish your soul, for you to begin to be amazed by who God is how great God is, how much he loves us, that these desires of our soul, the fact is, again, to prove the sense that we are hardwired for the sense of glory, is that the desires in our soul are ultimately greater than anything that this world has to offer. So if you think of it this way, your desire, my desire, all these desires that we have for something could never be fully, completely satisfied. And so what we do is we go through all these seasons of life where we long for something. I mean, have you ever like longed for something, desire something so much? It might be a relationship, it might be an object, it might be some sort of gadget you've longed for. I certainly have. I, I, love, I love cameras. I, I collect them and I use them. And I, I, I can think back in my history of realizing there have been seasons in my life where my eyes fix on, or I should even say fix eight on a particular camera. I'm like, I gotta have that. And I think about that camera all the time. I dream about that camera all the time. I'm constantly doing research about that camera. And then I finally get that camera. And like a week goes by and I'm like, ah, oh, I love this camera. And the crazy thing is I was just, as I was preparing for this, I saw, I saw that camera sitting on my shelf, literally collecting dust. I'm like, it's crazy. That thing didn't do it for me. It didn't satisfy me. It didn't give me the life the longevity that I hope. In other words, every single thing in this world that we oftentimes long for and set our affections on has an expiration date. It's in small print, by the way, and we don't know it. We're not aware of it. But at some point, once we obtain, once we get our hands on or our hearts around whatever that thing is, at some point, it's glory that it promised to bring into my life with sweeping beauty and sweeping transformation fades. You know this, right? And this is the reality of life, which means that our hearts were made for something bigger. Now, it doesn't mean that we should you know, become uh, monks and run away and disconnect ourselves from everything tangible, but it should mean that we have to recognize that every single thing in this world, good or evil, at some point will fail us. So listen to a couple passages, and I want to kind of reconnect this story to you. So the idea of this glory of God that radically can transform us and reorient our lives around its gravity or gravitational pull is really the central theme of the New Testament, that God is up to something in our lives, transforming, changing us around himself. That we, the, the way that this process typically happens is that God reveals himself to us, and again, this could be through a you know, a sermon, it could be through you reading the Bible, it could be through you having a dream, it could be, whatever, you get the idea. That God reveals himself to you, something about who God is ravishes your heart, you will become enchanted, blown away, amazed by the beauty of Jesus, and your heart gives in. You surrender, you give your life to it. That's what happened to me. Like, I was around 15, almost 16 years old, and my, I, I grew up knowing about God my entire life. Um, but right when I was around 15 or 16 years old, I walk into this high school group and people are singing and there's something happening in there that was unique or distinct from any other experience I'd ever had before. And when I walked in there, I was, I was blown away because it was an experience that I was not familiar with. But one of the things that I could only really describe years later was what radically reshaped my understanding was there's was, there was a glory, there's a weightiness about the gathering of those people. They, they loved Jesus. It wasn't just in word. It wasn't just in talk. The, 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 the words that they sung, the way that they cared for one another was something that had substance. It was weighty. It was glorious. And it caught me into its gravitational system. And I was transformed by it. Like, it was Jesus, obviously, through them. But their being responsive to Jesus allowed me to be transformed by that as a result. And one of the things I would come to know later is that as a result of that, that God, God's interaction, God's opening my eyes up to him and me trusting God, I began to realize like, like this God, God loves me. 
And not just in words. Again, that's another one of those great Christian cliches, uh, cliches that people love to say or state, and oftentimes it loses its poignancy, but that God loves us. And this begins, began to really reshape my life and can begin to shape your life. And listen to how the New Testament would basically put this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. Paul drops this little phrase, doesn't really go much into elaboration of it, but just listen to what he has to say. He says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Think about this. If anybody loves God, he is known by God. So what does it mean to be known by somebody or for somebody to know you? I mean, think about it this way. Have there been people in your life that you would look at and ascribe some level, some degree of glory around them? I mean, somebody, it might be a boss, it might be a celebrity, it might be a rock star, it might be, you know, somebody you have fallen in love with at a distance, could be a little creepy, but the point of the matter is, uh, somebody that you've ascribed some amount, some degree of greatness to. You follow? One of the most greatest forms of suffering is to be in a state of being unknown to them. You follow? To go through life, to be like, I love this person but they don't even know I exist. That, that mentality, right? You understand that? But Paul is actually saying the exact opposite. Those who love God are actually known by God. I want you to think about that. If you love God, no matter what degree or what level your love is of consistency, for some of you, you might be like, I love God a lot. I woke, woke up this morning and I read scripture, I journaled. Congratulations, Alpha overachiever. But the point of the matter is for the rest of us, we might look at our lives and be like, my love is kind of like a little flickering candle. Like, I love God. The deepest desires of my heart are oftentimes overcome by the strongest desires of my heart, which are to overeat or to slack or to do things that I shouldn't be doing. But the deepest desire of my heart is I want to love this God. To you, Whatever spectrum you would gauge your love on for God, it's the same. Paul would say, you are known by God. God, who's all glorious, knows you. So that's a profound reality. Again, it could be overfamiliar to us. It might be this distant reality for us. But if you put it into a context of everyday life, it has the power to radically reshape and alter your heart. Let me contrast this with what Jesus wrote in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He says this, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into my kingdom. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. One day, uh, or on the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name? But then Jesus said, I will reply and say, I, I never knew you. That's the beginning stages of completely coming undone. When the only voice of the entire universe looks at you and says, I, I don't know you. That should set an overwhelming sense of shock in some of our hearts. Because some of us may be playing games with God that if you look at the very basic line of your heart, our loves are conflicting. And again, this is not to say that if, if you are a follower of Jesus and you have these like flickering candle of love versus an open flame of love, I'm talking about that the overarching, deepest desires of your heart are, I don't really think too much about God. I'm not really caring about God. God is not something or someone or somebody that I really even feel like I ever have to even do business with because I can manage my own life. Thank you. One day, Jesus says, on that day of judgment, that day of reckoning, where all creatures designed by this architect will have to stand before him and give an account for how we had lived the life, the breath that we've been given as a gift from this architectural genius, this mastermind, and for some, Jesus will say, and again, he's, he's speaking specifically to the religious, which, again, some of you might be like, well, I'm religious. Well, that's, that's nice. So were these people. 
They apparently cast out demons. So it's, it's possible for you to do religious stuff and not be known by God. So the fact of the matter is, is there's something here that I think has the power to totally change our hearts. And I think that's what this idea of glory is all about. Let me, let me read to you um, a little passage out of uh, C.S. Lewis's book, which I, guess I told you guys about last week. It's called The a Weight of Glory or The Weight of Glory, which, again, I, I would say out of the top three books I've ever read in my entire life, I've read a lot. Um, that's probably one of the, the top most transformative books I've, I've ever read. It's a pretty easy read. It's pretty weighty, like no pun intended. Um, but I would highly recommend, if you've never read it, go find it, go pick it up on Amazon and read it. Listen to what he says. Um, he says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. Let me read up here. That my quote here is a little bit different, so I'll read this. The books or the music in which we thought beauty was located will betray us if we trust it. It was not in them, yet it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. So this this thought right now could be mind-blowing for some of you because he's not talking about it's not the substance that we're necessarily looking for it's there's a longing that goes for the substance he goes on to describe he says these things the beauty the memory of our own past are good images of are, are good images of what we really desire but if we uh, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself they turn into dumb idols and they break the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only a scent of the flower. We, are, we have not found the echo of the tune. We have not heard news from a country that we have never visited. And he goes on to basically state that really at the end of the day, we are created for God. That there's all sorts of things that God has created in this world that through them pass beauty. All right? Think of a human body. Human body is incredible. But if you look at the human body, i.e. via porn, that, that is an act of worship. It's an act of engagement. It's an act of open honor, worship, attribution of glory, weightiness to that human image. And at some point, that will desensitize you. It will ruin you. Because what will happen is we've taken the very thing that was intended to reflect God's glory, and we've made that the ultimate source of God's glory. And we worship it. The Bible word for that is idol. Music. You can think of any other form of poetry or art that is intended to reflect glory or to bring glory through it. But if you make it as an end in of itself, it will, like C.S. Lewis says, become an idol. Which means, again, going back to the original thing, that God's glory ultimately will reorient really the sum total of our lives around him. And that's what it means to really be a follower of Jesus. It means that we look at everything else in this world no matter how shiny or blingy or glorious or wonderful it is, and we recognize that all of these things are only things that, that, that demonstrate the glory of God through them. They are not ends in of themselves. And yet, we oftentimes keep going back to them. We substitute these things. Uh, John Calvin, the great reformer, said something to the fact that our hearts are like these idol factories. Do you understand this? That our desires, that's what they are. They're these idol factories. We're constantly fabricating, fashioning, forming, making something new to which I can then pour out the sum total of my affection and purpose upon it. And yet, as C.S. Lewis points out, that we ultimately were created for God's purposes. That you and I, as I said at the beginning, were wired for glory. The question is, is what glory are we pursuing? So if you were to pause and reflect upon this very first thing, you can ask a question like, what are the possibilities for your life if you fully believe this about God and yourself? Think about that. If you fully believed that God is all-glorious and he wires us for himself and he wants to transform our desires so that they are in sync or in line with him, that what are the possibilities for your life? And this radically can reshape so many areas of your life. Like I said, I can do an entire series of sermons just on this particular one, but I'm going to move on. The next thing that I would basically say is this. What aimless pursuits or empty love affairs or deceptive enchantments uh, would we ultimately be free from if we believe this? Think about that. What aimless pursuits, what empty love affairs, what deceptive enchantments would we be ultimately free from if we fully believed that the one opinion in the entire universe 
from which everything else derives its meaning and purpose from, says, I know them. They bear my name. They love me. I'm their God. I'm their father. That could set you free right now. You know that, right? If you fully believe that, that could set you free from all of these deceptive enchantments that we're hoping in, trusting in. Second thing I'm going to look at, wrap this up quickly here, is that God's glory will ultimately reshape how we see one another. Okay, question. How many of you can think of somebody right now, or a handful of people right now, that totally annoy you or drive you crazy? Right? I'm not going to ask you who. That's, I love that. That's awesome. I, I'm, I can, I'll raise my hand. I can think of a, a, a lot. Um, yeah, it's awesome. Good, good job. So this, this is church. It's okay to be honest. Those of you that didn't raise your hand, you all lie. We'll have an opportunity at the end to repent and trust Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, like, in church, it's, it's okay. Because we, this is part of the human reality. Like, we have people, I mean, being in relationships. is one of the reasons why a lot of times relationships are hard for us. In fact, there's all these studies out there basically saying for millennials, it's a whole new world of relationships. Like, this one thing I was watching, it was actually saying that, that millennials, they're, they're, they don't even know how to, like, like date. I was like, what? This, no, seriously, this whole thing was like this whole study on like millennials are, are losing this ability to even like interact with people because so much of their life is done behind a moniker or a name or some other online identity that when you come face to face with another human being, it's kind of like, hi, um, I like cappuccinos. And you're like, I, I don't know how to relate. I don't know how to talk. I don't know how to have interaction. And if that relationship in any ways devolves into conflict, oh my goodness, now you have no idea what to do. Because we're not, we're not equipped to know how to handle conflict. We don't know how to work through it. And look, the fact of the matter is, if any of you want to invest your heart in the life of another human being, you have to learn how to work through conflict. I honestly believe this is one of the reasons why people move from relationship to relationship or from job to job or church to church or small group to small group is it literally boils down to we don't know how to work through conflict. So we do what's easiest, which is just run. It's a fight or flight mentality. Some, some fight, but most of us, we just flight. We run because it's too hard. It opens up wounds. It forces us to have to deal not only with the stuff of other people, but sometimes the stuff of other people is like a mirror that reflects the stuff of my own heart. And I don't like what I see. So I want to flee. I want to run from that. But what if God's glory is intended, as it plays out in our lives, to completely reshape how we see one another? Let me give you a couple examples of this. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says this. Dear friends, we are already God's children. Again, he's writing to followers of Jesus, so it just, it's not a blanket statement like to all humanity. This is, this is written to people that have committed their hearts, their lives, their loyalties to Jesus as king. He says, dear children, we are already God's children, but he has, it has, he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he truly is. So tuck that away. Think about that, that there, there is a future state for you and I that we will look different. We'll be the same people, but we will look different. We will, we will live, we will think differently than what we currently do right now. Again, what will that be? I have no idea. Uh, even John says, I have no idea what this looks like, but we know it's amazing. All right? He goes on, uh, Philippians, another passage, Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this. This is actually a pretty fascinating passage. I just want you to listen to it real carefully because there's a really, really incredibly practical end to this. Listen, listen to what he says. This. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things himself. So again, there's a power that's at work here. What, what is that power? It's, it's a power that God harnesses. It's a pretty potent Powerful power, right? It's a big power because whatever this power is, it allows God to basically summon all of creation, which we're saying about all of it, reflects and comes back to him. And it's this power that raised Jesus from the dead, gave him a new body. Again, you can read about that in the Gospels. And Paul says the same future state, the same thing that happened to Jesus will be our future hope. Following? Okay, next slide. He goes on to say, uh, next little verse here. 
Therefore, my family, whom I love and long for, some of your translations might say my brothers and my brethren, uh, it's kind of the idea of my family, my family whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And verse 2, it gets really creative. Now, most of us, we stop at chapter 3, the last verse in chapter 3, and we, we you know, wait a day or two, and then we get back into chapter 4. But that's not how this was written. I'm just reading this as this was written, um, and he goes on to say, therefore my family whom I love, my joy, my crown, I love you guys, you guys are amazing. He says, I entreat you, I entreat Judea and Syneche to agree in the Lord. Now, now who are these ladies? Have absolutely no clue. But this is like actually reading someone else's mail. What in the world's happening here? Paul's writing a letter. So again, like I said, we literally are actually reading somebody else's mail. But whoever these people are, there's some sort of like dispute going on between the two of them. So I envision this community in this city called Philippi, two ladies in the church, they hate each other or they're frustrated with each other, right? So I, I know some of you might not in any way, shape, or form be able to relate to this, but, but this is what was happening in this ancient church. So just play along with me. Two ladies in a church, and it doesn't have to be ladies, it could be men, but in this case, it's two ladies. He says, I entreat Judea and Syneche to agree in the Lord. And then he goes on to say, and he opens up to the rest of the community, yes, I also speak to you. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, whose names are in the book of life. What's going on here? What's going on here is, is relationships. And what Paul is saying, hey, is, guys, the whole landscape, the relational landscape has been terraformed. We know this because Jesus lives. Do you get this? <laughs> this, this is the part of the message that we're just like, ah, can we just go on to the next one? We have to think about this because relationships matter. Dysfunctional relationships matter to God. Those people that we're angry with, that we're frustrated with, that drive us mad, we might even be married to, those matter to God. And what Paul is saying is that because of God's glory reigning in Jesus, raising him from the dead, and we are in Jesus with the same power pulsating through our veins, are treated to be a people of peace in a community that breeds, that brings, breeds reconciliation. Listen how C.S. Lewis would put this. I'm going to move on to the next one, actually. I might even just finish up here, last one. Listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say about this. This is so powerful. Just listen. He says, it may be asked what practical use there is in considering the weight of glory. Again, you can be like, weight of glory, I don't get it. It's so big, so lofty, so massive. What is, what, what's, the, what's the practical nature of all this? He says, uh, it may be asked, what's the practical use of considering the weight of glory? He says, I can think of at least one such use. It may be possible to each think too much of their own potential glory hereafter. It's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. Listen, the weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my blade on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. Think about that. <laughs> Got people coming on stage. I'm just Sorry. Oh, hi. <laughs> okay, <laughs> tuning guitars. So, I love you, man. You got glory, bro. How, how does this play into the fullness of our lives? Because here's what, here's what he's saying, is when I look at someone, my temptation is to be angry, to be frustrated with somebody. What would it look like to allow the glory of God to reshape how I think about my brother or my sister? Or the one that offends me, or the one that's hurt me, or the one that's caused a lot of damage or pain or grief in my life. What would it do to me to think about the weight of glory that's upon their back? He goes on to say, listen, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as if you met it now, it would only be in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one 
or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with awe and circumspension proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all of our friendships, all loves, all plays, all politics, all boyfriend, girlfriend, all roommates, all spouses, all co-workers. You get the idea? And he goes on to say, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as a life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. Immortal horrors or immortal splendors. So what would happen if we saw people through a different lens as capable of immortal glory? That's hard to think about, but this is exactly what the gospel invites us to consider. Lastly, I'm done with this one. I'm going to go through this one quickly because I can, again, spend an entire series on just this alone. But God's glory will ultimately open to us a whole new perspective on suffering. You realize that the sum total of the New Testament is really writings addressing the subject of of suffering in a lot of ways. Because some of these communities that as they began to grow... They suffered immensely. And Paul's writings to them, or the New Testament writings to them, was to help them to look at their suffering, not within the context of denial, or to act as if it's not real, or to somehow minimize it, but to assume suffering for what it is. It's there. It's real. It's tangible. It's painful. It causes grief. It causes ruin in our own hearts. Do you realize that most great Uh, philosophers and even religions have been born on the back of wrestling with the subject of of suffering. Nietzsche, for example, wrestled with the subject of suffering and wrote extensively about this. Buddha uh, had written his entire philosophy. The entire Buddhism is all about suffering, how to deal with suffering. The Bible also addresses the subject of suffering. And what we know with regard to at least the context of the Bible is that God is not someone that is unaware of suffering. Because the very story of the Bible is God comes into our world to suffer. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And ultimately dying, rising again from the dead, and then inviting us out of the grave to follow him. Listen to how Paul would later put this. Romans chapter 8, verses 17 to 18, he says this. We are his children, and we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Just pause and think about that. Heirs of God's glory. Glory. So whatever God's glory is, this profound acceptance, this profound brilliance, this profound radiance, this profound weightiness, all of that, Paul says, that's our future inheritance. Then he goes on to say, he says, but if we share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing to be compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. Other translations, Paul says, look, I realize that the suffering that I'm currently going through is nothing compared to the weight of glory that will one day be revealed in Jesus. So, this whole idea of God's glory has this power, this profound ability to radically reorient the entirety of your lives. It has this ability to radically reshape how you see each other, but it also has this profound ability to open to us up whole new perspectives on our suffering, your suffering, what you may be going through. And finally, I close with this thought that what we see in response to God's glory, we left off with this last week, is that in the book of Revelation, we see that when people came around, they were moved by the glory of God. In the book of Revelation, it says that they take off their crowns and they cast them before the glory of God. That's what it means to give God glory. Again, this is one of those great Christian phrases, give God glory, like, Again, it's wonderful. What does that mean? Well, in a tangible way, practical way, it means to take all the sum total of your weightiness, the sum total of who you think you are, the stuff you think is great in your life, as well as the stuff you know is crappy, to lay it at his feet and say, you alone, Lord God, are deserving of everything. You alone, God, have given me everything that I am. You alone, God, are worthy of all praise and honor and worship. That's what it means to take our crowns, to lay them at his feet, to take all that we are 
all that has shaped us, all that is currently shaping us to worship, to honor him. And I want to invite you to do that now. So we're going to respond in closing as we go to the table and we consider, we think about who God is, who we are, and what God is up to in this world and how glory will reshape us. So why don't we all respond? Let's all stand and tune our hearts to be prepared. And the worship team will come on up and lead us in a song or two. And it's an opportunity for us to do business with God. And I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what types of circumstances. I would imagine, again, all of us, we have people at least on a very practical level we can think of that annoy us, drive us crazy, or hurt us, or wounded us in our lives. And the invitation for us is to respond. To respond to this weighty acceptance and love that can only be described as glory, the glory of God. To allow that to have its impact upon your life and mine. I want to give you an opportunity. Maybe you're here this morning. You're not a Christian. You're someone that's far from God. And you've come in here and you might not have had a whole lot of understanding of who God is. I want, to, I want to pray with you. I want to give you an opportunity to trust Jesus. So I'm going to pray. And if that's you, if you're not a Christian, if you're someone that's been far from God and you want to trust Jesus, I'm going to just pray a simple prayer. And you can repeat after me in your own heart. I just, you can just pray it before God in all honesty before him. And then I'll pray and then we'll just respond by singing and partaking of communion and worshiping God. Which, by the way, there's rugs in the front, as always. It's a way for us to respond by, to God by even kneeling in a very tangible way and being prayed for. I'll be up here to pray with you, but as well as some other leaders. Let me pray right now. Let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes, and let's just give God this, this space for him to do with us uh, what his desire is through us. Um, so if that's you, you'd like to pray, um, just repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I thank you for your great love. I realize my life is incomplete and broken and lost apart from you. And right now I want to trust you to reshape my heart, recapture my affection, and give me life, make things new. So I trust my heart to you as my king. In Jesus' name. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if, if that was you and you prayed that, because it's just this is not like open audience time. So if that was you and you, you prayed that, I would love to just know who you are so I can continue to pray for you. Um, would you mind just raise your hand? I'd love to see if that was you. Brad, so cool. Anybody else? So cool. Thank you. Praise God. Awesome. Anybody else? Cool. The rest of us, let's just respond to God and sing, worship, eat the bread, drink the cup, be reminded of the incredible love that God has for us. If you need prayer, if you raise your hand, you can, you're more than welcome to come on up. You don't have to, but we'll be up here. Love to pray with you. So let's respond.